All right, so, um, can you tell me something I really didn't need to know? Hey, Mom, tell me something I didn't need to know. So how about let's learn something we really don't need to know. Hi, Mary. Hi, Hanno. How are you? I'm good. Yeah. How are you doing? Oh, good. I have a wonderfully warm, yummy cup of coffee in my hands. I'm sitting with my sister, who I love. Wow. I'm not at work today. You usually aren't when we record. That would be awkward. It actually might be really entertaining. It could be really entertaining. We yeah. just start randomly pulling customers off the out of the aisles and say, excuse me, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And listen to my tidbit. And you know what? I actually have some really interesting customers, and I have a coworker, and I have a customer who I actually would love to have guest on here. Really? Yeah. Oh, invite him. So I have a coworker that not only does he install solar and builds solar-powered golf carts. Yeah. He also has a business where he goes to festivals and he makes solar-powered popcorn. Yes, we need him. We need him. So. I have these customers that I would love to have come on. Absolutely. Who I know a little bit about the backstory of how they got their idea to start their business here. And they just scored a contract and their product is at Meyer now. Ooh. They make kombucha. Oh. And it's fantastic. Ooh. And I love their product and the two of them are just really amazing people. And then I think it would be fantastic to have them come on someday. Those, just, are, the, those are the best And just talk about their story. All right. Okay, so welcome to Tell Me Something I Didn't Need to Know. Now that we've babbled for a few minutes. That's right. I am one of your hosts, Mary Swartz. I'm Hannah Green. And we're going to keep you entertained today, so thanks for being with us. Um, for anyone who listens to the other podcast... Last Sunday, we did a story about the French Quarter, the strange goings-on in the French Quarter. Not last Sunday, Mary. They don't come out on Sunday. They come out on Wednesdays. Good job. Good catch. I'm glad one of us knows what's going on. I really am. This one comes this out one on This one comes out on Sunday. <laughs> All right. Last Wednesday, it was the French Quarter. The following, next Wednesday, March 23rd, um, the episode is called So Many Questions because that's really... <laughs> it's really where Hannah left us. <laughs> she took us to the edge of a cliff, and she drove off, leaving us stranded with thousands of questions in our head. It was a, it was actually a really good story. Um, of course, we do another one bites the dust corner, so you get to hear that. And just make sure you tune in and join us. And I yeah, know. yes, Hannah tells a fantastic story. I try. I really you do. do. I don't, I mean, it's kind of like sometimes you don't know where I find mine, and I look at you and go, I have no idea where you found that shit. And I will never disclose my sources. Because then you have to kill them if they're not already dead. And if I told <laughs> you, I might have to kill you too. <clears throat> and then she I have a podcast episode all by herself. <laughs> About me. <laughs> and all the questions surrounding your death. You would have to fill in the oh my gods. And I would And what the fuck. And I don't, I don't know if I would tell them you were dead. I would just be like, has anyone seen Mary? Ooh. What happened to Mary? Ooh. Have you heard about Mary? <laughs> what about Mary? <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of going there. Sweet. <laughs> uh, word of the week. Mm. Apple knocker. Pardon me. Apple knocker. 
Apple I didn't knocker. even stutter. Apple knocker. Apple knocker. Okay. I have a question. You always have questions. I just want to know. Yeah. Is an apple knocker a person who throws apples at windows to wake you up? Nope. Because you know they what? They could. I mean, they, they, they could. Because a window knocker used to be a real thing. Oh. People would go around in the morning before alarm clocks and you, you paid them. And they would go from house to house and they would use a long stick and they would knock on the, on the windows to wake you up. Oh, wow. I can see how that would be a thing before alarm clocks. All right. But no, that's not what it is. An apple knocker. An apple knocker. Hmm. Spelled exactly like it sounds. I know. I, I'm trying to come up with... I'm trying to, de- I'm trying to decide between something re- that I think it might actually be and something really super sarcastic. So many choices, Johanna. <laughs> I once saw this movie. I can't remember what they called it, though. Where they the family would gather together and they would play baseball with apples. Is it the batter in the apple baseball game? No. Oh, okay. No. Croquet? No. With apples? I think it could turn you into an apple knocker. Croquet with apples could? I think. Does this good? Is this a drinker? Mm. Is an apple knocker someone who drinks? No. Oh, okay. It's basically a ignorant or unsophisticated person. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. I, I wish I could remember what movie that was. I don't know. Man, I might have to think. I, I might have to Google that now because, uh, yeah. Anyway. All right. Okay. All what right. What do you got for us? Fribble. Fribble. Ooh, fribble. Fribble. Mm-hmm. Fribble is the puddle you leave on your pillow when you get up in the morning and you've drooled on yourself. Because we've all left a little puddle on our pillow over the years. Or on someone's shoulder. <clears throat> or on someone's shoulder, yeah. Fribble, Which is yeah. really awkward. Especially when you don't know them. Oh my god! <laughs> <clears throat> well, since you know how I feel about being touched by anybody, especially people I don't know, can you imagine if someone I didn't know drooled on me because they were asleep? What if you drooled on them? I I wouldn't care. Yes, you would. I would oh, don't. yes, you would. <laughs> I, mean, I know. Because <laughs> knowing my luck, it'd be some super <clears throat> totally hot guy. Who's wiping your face with his tissue. <laughs> his tie and at the end he's like you can just keep it yeah i'm like do i get your number with that he just walks away uh no (laughs) (laughs) no you and i have seen enough of each other (laughs) yes okay let's just keep this memory yeah let's not ruin it (laughs) let's not ruin what we already have Fribble. No idea? I gave you my answer. Okay. Fribble is to act in a giddy or frivolous manner. Oh, we've done that. We have definitely done that. Yes. All right. Tell us what we're drinking today, Hannah. So today. Which, oh my goodness. um, We are actually drinking two of my favorites put together. So, my sister loves me so much that while she was out and about, she came across a bag of my all-time favorite coffee, which is a Mexican chocolate coffee by, uh, I think it's called Cafe Mexico, Mexica? I think so. They make some amazing, they have a 
They do a Mexican hazelnut, a Mexican cinnamon. cinnamon. They have um, a salted caramel. They have a coconut. Yes. Now I've I've tried the hazelnut. I've tried the cinnamon, and those are amazing, also. Yes. But I think that the chocolate is my very favorite out of all of theirs. Yes. And I remember that the first time I found it, I found it in the pods. Yes. And I bought it for you for Christmas. You did. Not knowing how amazing it was. And it was so amazing. You didn't share. Not only did I not share, which is really unlike you, I. This I don't know if you know this. I drank about one cup a month to make it last. And when I got down to one pod, I held on to it for the longest time because the idea of not having any more made me really sad. Oh. And then we came across it again. Yeah. And, th- and then I went home that day and drank my pod. Yeah. <laughs> that I'd been saving. Is it's it just it's lovely. It's the flavor is not like artificial it's just lovely and it's very smooth <clears throat> yeah okay yes. so right. paired with our coffee our mexican chocolate coffee we are drinking the double chocolate moonshine from mclaughlin distillery that mary and i got on our pennsylvania vacation because we're special so it's fantastic the moonshine itself was really rich and really really well done no bite at all to it right yeah they use real chocolate in it to the point where the um the butterfat actually separates out a little bit you have to shake the bottle before you can drink it it's fantastic yeah definitely definitely a really good choice it is delicious Today's a little gray, a little dreary, a little wet and chilly out there, and um, this is a perfect drink for today. It is. All right. Mm. Um, I am going to mention that last week you did the story on the wreath balls. Yes. Which was pretty cool. Oh my gosh, it was fantastic, and um, I was so thrilled with that story. It was. It was awesome. So after editing it, um, I decided to throw the link of the company that you used, I threw their website link on the end of our thing and then I contacted them just to let them know that we had thrown their link on there and why we'd done the story. Um, And they responded with a couple questions to which I answered. Um, And then they responded, which for a company to me to get two email responses was, you know, kind of out of the ordinary. And then Not, they sent you a packet in the mail. They sent me a really amazing packet in the mail. It didn't it didn't take long to get. It is super informative. It has so much information in it. Yep. Um, and they followed that up with an actual phone call, which I almost didn't answer because I didn't recognize the phone number and it was out of state. But yeah, they touched, I mean, they personally touch, reached out to touch us to, to find out if we had gotten what we needed, to thank us. And that was so, she was so nice on the phone. You know, to make sure that we had everything that we needed and wanted to include in our story. And then they're going to, they're, they're, I think they're intending to listen, correct? Yeah, they wanted to know what episode, what date. So yeah. yes, they are definitely going to listen. So I'm really <clears throat> excited about that. You know, that story, even since we've recorded it, I've continued to talk about that story. There are some stories that we do that just, for whatever reason, they just really resonate. They really stick with us. And that one happens to be one of them. Yeah, we do a lot of stories that make you go, what the hell? Or, I never saw that coming. But then again, once in a while, we do those stories that 
are really super meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. And that one is just... That was one of them. I cannot say enough about that company and about their vision. Oh my goodness. You're right. You are so right. All right. So Mary, you got a little tidbit for us. Of course. Okay. All right. This is your taxpayer dollar. Hard at work. Oh. Really hard at work. Okay. An excess sign on a Delaware highway was replaced after the drivers pointed out on social media that it had misspelled the name of the state that it belonged to. Are you kidding me? Numerous posts appeared on social media when the Delaware Avenue exit sign on northbound Interstate 95 in Willington, Wilmington was installed and travelers quickly noticed it was spelled Delaware. Oh. The uh, Hewitt Infrastructure Company, which is the Department of Transportation's contractor, said that the spelling error wasn't noticed until after the sign had been installed. Apparently, no one at that company uses spell check. And apparently, they don't know how to spell the name of the state they work in, live in, work for. Hello? Right. That's, oh, my God. That's, how many people had to have seen that sign yeah. prior to it being installed? And really, they're installing the sign and nobody goes, that doesn't look right. Yeah, even in your installers. I don't get it. I, I don't either. So the Delaware Department of Transportation put out a Facebook post, and they joked in this post, saying that the sign's typo had been a test to see if drivers were paying attention. To which I respond, really, Delaware? Really? <laughs> they were hacked. It's no longer spyware. It's Delaware. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. I know. That's insane. I know. Crazy. All right. So, with the pandemic and the lockdowns mm. and, and everything that we've gone through in the last two years, a lot of people have took up <clears throat> new hobbies, trying to find ways to pass the time. I took up drinking. Or to make their money stretch a little further. Okay. So, some people started baking bread. Mm-hmm. Some people took up gardening. Mm-hmm. Some people took up knitting or crocheting yep. or yeah. origami. Yes. Some t- people took up collecting booze. Not us. We were already doing that, Mary. Oh, oh, okay. That's not We're like to- trendsetters. Yeah, yeah. They're just following our lead. Wonderful. Oh, no. that's right. During the pandemic, I was working on cleaning it out. <laughs> now... Because people began drinking more and collecting more, of course, that has led to shortages and price increases and various other things. Okay. Yeah. It's also led to some people who aren't quite so honest. This is true. So apparently counterfeit bourbon is a problem. It was already a problem in the past, but during the pandemic, it has actually become way more of a problem. Yes. Yes, it has. Now, back in 2018, a lab tested rare scotches, different different rare scotch. Okay. A third of them were fake. Holy shit. Now, that was scotch. Right. Okay. Now, there's been a surge in the rare bourbon market. So, not just bourbon, but rare bourbons. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we did a story on Pappy Van Winkle. Yes. Way, way back in the beginning. So... 
The problem here is you have all these people who really don't really know a whole lot about bourbon, but who have decided they're going to start collecting it. Right. And who, in their infinite wisdom, have decided that they have all this excess money from the government, and what better way to spend it than to collect rare bourbons that they can then sell for more money. Okay. Well, the problem with that is twofold. One, it's actually illegal to sell bourbon on the secondary market in the U.S., so if I buy a bottle of bourbon, I can't sell it to you legally. Right. Unless you have a oh, distributor license. Exactly. Yeah. Second of all. <clears throat> which I can vouch that you don't have. Although I could I could make you up one. Print it out. <laughs> well, I'd just like to say that while I am generous with my alcohol. Yeah, I am where's the rest of the chocolate moonshine? In the bottom of your cup. <laughs> While I am generous with sharing my alcohol, at no point in time have I ever felt the need to sell it versus give it away. No, you're right. Me either. Now, the second problem with the fact that it's illegal to sell bourbon secondhand, which means that you can collect it, but you actually can't sell it. Right. You have to pay someone who can legally sell it to sell it for you. Right, but what are the chances you're going to get caught, actually, honestly? Well, if you have a rare bourbon collection and you're going to sell the whole collection for, like, your retirement fund, you're probably going to get busted. that, That would be a little different. But so the second problem is that these people who have decided to start collecting rare bourbon with their excess government money as a means of getting rich don't know anything about bourbon. But I don't think you can just apply that to people who have excess government money. I think you're probably going to find that across the board. Yes, because but, but we're talking about people... This particular article that I'm reading is specifically talking about the influx of novice bourbon collectors. Okay. Because who never I, collected bourbon until the pandemic and the unemployment. Right. So a lot of them... Now have this influx of money. Yeah. And so... But I do think you're going to find that lack of knowledge across the board. Oh, I would agree. I think I would absolutely agree. always going to find people who buy it because Listen. of the name. Look at what I have without actually knowing anything about the product that they supposedly bought. I think she agrees with me. Our well, producer says I you, am correct on this one. You and I both know that once you've had a few shots of bourbon... Everything tastes like it's rare and amazing. Which is exactly why we have a bottle of bourbon cream behind you that we have yet to open. And we have two because I also own one. And we have bourbon balls, which we haven't finished. Because they're so strong that when we tried to eat them, they made us cough. But after a few shots of bourbon, they were damn good. Oh my God, they were so delicious. We had to buy everything. Yeah. Pretty sure that's a great way to sell shit in your, in your store. Have people come in for a bourbon tasting, give them a few shots of bourbon, now they're shit-faced, and they'll buy everything that they think is amazing out of your store. So we should open up a store for anything, even a coffee shop, and give them a bourbon tasting, and then they will (laughs) buy everything. (laughs) It'll be very popular. Oh my god. Very popular. Oh lord. Okay. We have these people Uh buying bourbon who don't know what they're doing. Right. That would be me. And then you have these people who recognize this and recognize 
that they can basically scam the shit out of these people with these fake rare bourbons. Oh, absolutely. And, of course, <clears throat> the article actually says part of the problem is the culture around bourbon. It's the bragging rights and being able to Instagram a bottle or Twitter or yeah. TikTok or <laughs> Snapchat or whatever social media they choose to right. use, like you were saying. Yeah. So, so there are people who actually, <clears throat> they specialize in identifying counterfeit bourbons and counterfeit bottles. Okay. <clears throat> okay, we can go with that. So, because any good con man knows how to take advantage of, of someone. Right. And especially of someone who's greedy. Okay. So, people who aren't buying the bourbon because they want to enjoy it, but people who are buying it, like I said, because they think they're going to get rich off of it. Yeah. That's how most scams end up working is you think you're going to get something great out of it. You're mm. going to get money. You're going to get fame. You're going to get whatever. Are you saying I'm not? Not you in particular. <laughs> the, 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 I know. I know. I know exactly what you're re- saying. Yeah. I know exactly <clears throat> what you're saying. Yes. So, last May, things got so bad. Last May, really? America's oldest wine shop got called out for unwittingly selling a 1,000 bottle of bourbon that was believed to be fake. And then in September, last September, Buffalo Trace, the maker of that bottle, as well as other coveted bourbon brands like Van Winkle. Oh, yeah. Peppy Van Winkle. Blanton's and Double Eagle issued a blanket statement warning customers not to fall victim to an increasing number of fraudulent sellers on the internet and social media. Right, because what most people are not aware is that some of these really big bourbon names, um, they make small batches. Yeah. So there's a very, very limited supply. So if, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. And they have a customer list. Mm-hmm. That gets a specific amount of that, and it doesn't go into the stores. No, it's you know. So if you are buying it from someone who says, "I found it in this liquor store," you probably didn't. He probably didn't. Right. Exactly. Okay. So the moral of this is, and this is how the article ends: If you're buying rare bourbons, be careful out there, and make sure you're doing at least a little bit of homework. Most people are lazy, and they are impatient. And they are greedy. Yep. And that is how you get taken advantage of. You are very, very correct. So, yes. We're bourbons, mostly fake. Yeah. Well, we're not real big bourbon drinkers. Oof. Nope. Unless we are already drinking bourbon. (laughs) (laughs) And then we think it's amazing. You know... And here's the funny thing. We walked out of there, and I'm pretty sure we got in the car, and I said, well, that was an experience I don't need to repeat. As I load my bottles of bourbon into the back of my car. <laughs> it wasn't horrible. Um, the first one we tasted was god-awful to well, me. Well, that was their basic, and yes. it's not aged as much. No, it was like aged like five and years or something. And I don't think that we had breakfast. Yeah, that's the other thing is don't you go do a bourbon tasting at like ten o'clock in the morning. morning without eating. Yeah, 
I'm not it even was, sure if we'd had a cup of coffee yet. You know what? It was a it was a good experience. It was a it's an amazing memory. Yes, I laugh. Hopefully, we learn something and don't repeat it. Now that having been said, if I went with someone and they said, "Hey, we want to go do this bourbon tasting. What do you think?" If it was free, I wouldn't turn it down. And here's why: having tasted one brand of bourbon that I didn't really care for. But being a wine drinker has taught me just because I didn't care for that brand doesn't mean I wouldn't like a different one. Right. Because there are no, there's no such thing as two bourbons that are the same. No, no, absolutely not. Um, And even, even the bourbon makers will tell you that the flavor is going to fluctuate the same, um, the same exact label and the same exact um, process to make it is going to fluctuate from year to year the flavor is yes oh um, yes definitely we learned some amazing stuff when we oh, went on the absolutely. bourbon tasting and i'm really glad about it yes um and it just created some very fun memories for us absolutely i do actually have a small bottle of that 1792 still like i said i wouldn't turn down tasting bourbons i probably just wouldn't go to the store and buy one no no all right you ready for a story? Yes, tell okay. me a story, Mary. Now, <clears throat> this story comes with a really weird, weird twist at the end, which I never saw coming. Okay. And I wrote the story. Okay. okay. The story's called No Rules. Did you make up the twist at the end? Is that no. why you didn't see it coming? Oh, hell no, I didn't. I, could, I couldn't make up this twist. You couldn't make up this twist. Bet you I could. Nope. Okay, let's go. All right. No Rules. No story's rules. called No Rules. Everybody needs rules. We might not feel like we do, but we do. We need rules. If without rules, people drive into each other. They don't go to work on time. They don't pay their bills on time. They don't eat right. They don't... I mean... If it a would game, be chaos. It would be total chaos. So, did you ever play a game without rules? Because you have to have rules. Because then nobody knows what they're doing if you don't. Never played a game without rules. But I've played a game where every single turn, the rules change. That's different. That's a rule. That is still a rule. Every turn, the game, the, the rules change. That's a rule. All right. So the, the story is called No Rules. Eddie Cantor was actually born Isidori. It's Kowitz, the son of Mikkel Itzkowitz, who was an amateur violinist, and his wife Mita Itzkowitz, and the two were a young Jewish couple from Russia. Okay. They immigrated to New York. They had a baby. They named it. They named it Isidore. He later became Eddie. And Eddie was born in New York City. Now, some reports say January thirty-first. Some reports say September tenth or eleventh. Hold on. Wait. What? Did you first say January thirty-first? Yes, I did. Yes. Like nine months apart. Yes, it is. Hmm. Can't, I, I can't explain the discrepancy. Couldn't find his birth certificate. Also couldn't find his death certificate. Hmm, maybe okay. he didn't actually exist. So although it was reported that Canton, Cantor was an orphan, it is it, it was said that he is an orphan because his mother died in childbirth and that his father died of pneumonia. The official records I found say differently. Okay. The official records I found say that his mother, Mita, died 
um, complications of tuberculosis in July of 1894. And the fate of his father is a little unclear. I couldn't find a death certificate from him. I did find a record for him on genie.com that said he died in 1895. Didn't say from what. So when his parents were gone, no matter when they died, they still died when he was young, his grandmother Esther took custody of him, raised him, and then she too died January 29th of 1917. Okay. By his early teens, Eddie Cantor began winning talent contests at local theaters, and he also started appearing on stage. He was quite a talented young man. Okay. One of his earliest paying jobs was he worked as a, he doubled as a waiter and a performer at Carrie Walsh's Coney Island Saloon. He sang there. He waited and he sang. Okay. The nice thing about this is that Jimmy Durante actually appeared there also. Oh. And they actually did a duet together at least once. Aw. Okay. Okay. So he made his first public appearance in vaudeville in 1907 at New York's Clinton Music Hall. He made his Broadway debut in the Ziegfeld Follies of 1917. So he's moving up the ladder. Right. Cantor co-starred in an act with some very well-known actors, such as Burt Williams, Will Rogers, Marilyn Miller, Fanny Bryce, and W.C. Fields. Okay. He worked with a lot of people. His career spanned from 1907 all the way through 1962, 55 long and extremely productive years. He was on the radio. When phonograph records began to take off around 1917, he began, he began recording comedy songs and comedy routines for people to listen to at home. He recorded for the Columbia Company, and he later worked for Victoria Recording. Oh, wow. Now, in 1934, gentlemen by the name of Fred Coots and Haven Gillespie, do you know who they are? Have you ever heard of them? Fred Coots and Haven Gillespie. Here's the thing. I feel like I've heard the name Fred Coots before. I don't know why. Gillespie is a really popular last name. At least it used to be. Yeah. So the Gillespie part rings a bell, but I'm not, okay. I can't place either okay. of them, no. Well, the two of them got together and they wrote a song. Okay. They wrote a song that, that they actually couldn't get any recording companies to accept, no matter how hard they tried. Okay. Company after company told them that the song was silly. It was childish. Nobody wanted to hear it. Okay. They got the same responses from a lot of the artists that they approached. Want no part of it. So they went to Eddie. And Eddie said, yeah, let me have it. I'll do it for you. Okay. Okay. So Eddie agrees to sing it in November. And by Christmas, so we're talking a month and a half. The song had sold over 400,000 copies, and this is in 1934. Oh, my gosh. This is insane. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's amazing. So what song was it? It was, oh, a little number called Santa Claus is Coming to Town. Wow. Eddie had radio shows. He had television shows. He had talk shows. Eddie was in film, and he was on television. And in 1932, Parker Brothers came out with a board game called Eddie Cantor's. Tell it to the judge. Wow. You can still buy it on eBay. Cost you about 40 bucks. And he was an, a writer of at least seven books. He co-authored a lot of others. He was the second president of the Screen Actors Guild. He actually invented the title, The March of Dimes, 
for a donation campaign of the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis. And that was started to combat polio in infants. Okay. Okay. So that's where actually where March of Dimes started. Interesting. Yeah. Eddie sang. He danced. It seems that there was little Eddie Cantor couldn't do. Eddie was a man who never sat still. Had his fingers in a lot of pies, usually at the same time. He was an iconic figure in his era. And he quite possibly helped change the course of history. But the story, it's not about Eddie. Okay. Millions of listeners tuned in to his hour-long Sunday evening broadcast. Every Sunday. Family gathered around, turned the radio on, and listened to his broadcast. And at one point in time, he told his listeners he would sponsor a four-year scholarship to any college or university within the United States to whomever could write the best essay explaining how the United States could stay out of war. Sounds pretty easy. The essay, it's open to everybody. Male, female, young, old, didn't matter. Get your paper, get your pen, start writing. It's open to everybody. Okay. There are really no rules to Eddie's contest. Had to be 500 words or more, that was it. No rules. No strings attached. Eddie basically said that he had never had the opportunity to go to college himself, so he wanted to provide it to somebody else. Okay. He's trying to create what he called a string of peace within the United States, a place to start. And this was going to be that start. Okay. He wanted peace everywhere. So submissions had to be in by President's Day that year, which fell on February 22nd, and the winner would be announced on Eddie's show later that year. What possibly could go wrong? Um, the fact that you probably are going to get thousands and thousands of entries. Some of them could be pages and pages long. And who? how are you going to read them all? That's the first thing that comes okay. to mind. Okay. So, Eddie believed in his idea of this contest so strongly that he went ahead and he actually set up a trust of $5,000 for the scholarship. Okay. Set it up, funded it. That would be about $101,000 today. Okay. The fund would cover all expenses of the winner, and Eddie also designated that if the winner, for some unforeseen reason, could not use the fund themselves, they could actually designate another person to use it for for school. Okay. Okay. So four judges were chosen to pick the winner of the contest. Okay, so he doesn't have to read all these essays. No. Okay. Four very well-known, very distinguished, very educated gentlemen are picked. By the time the contest closed on President's Day, it's about a six-week period, more than 212,000 entries had been received. Yep. That's a hell of a lot of essays for the four men to read. Yeah, it's more than 50,000 apiece. It actually comes out to about 53,000 apiece. Yep. Well, I think that you can weed out some real quick just by the first paragraph. The judges had no way of knowing who wrote the essays. Each entry received a number, and that's what our four well-read judges, that's what they would know them by. Okay. So they had no idea whether it was a man, a woman, a young person, an old person. By the beginning of April, the four judges had chosen a winner. Okay. They chose the essay that was numbered number two. All four judges agreed it was the most constructive, sincere, interesting, and well-written letter out of 212,000. Okay. It was the best. The winner turned out to be an 18-year-old student by the name of Lloyd Franklin Lewis. He was a junior in high school. Wow. All right. Good deal. His family was poor. They lived in a small town. 
Okay. They owned a farm which was heavily mortgaged. Wasn't doing well. Their financial outlook was extremely unfortunate. And the news that Lloyd was going to get a scholarship was probably the most incredible news they had received in a very long time. Right. The Lewis family was poor enough that they didn't even have a phone in their home. Which is why when they chose Lloyd as the winner and Eddie Canton had to call the winner, he actually had to call the dry cleaners down the street from the school. And the dry cleaner employee had to go get Lloyd to come answer the phone. They went got Lloyd out of class. It's a long distance phone call. You gotta come answer it. We don't know who it is, but you gotta come answer it. So Lloyd Franklin Lewis was from this little town. He'd never been anywhere before this. And this man was this young man was gonna go to New York. What an amazing adventure for someone so young. Right. He'd never been on a train. He'd never been on an airplane. He had lived in his home state of Missouri for his entire life, except for 30 minutes that he went over the state line. So exactly what did this young, inexperienced, free-thinking boy write that made the other 211,999 entries pale in comparison? I'm going to read you this. It's a quote. Peace is an expensive luxury. It is so expensive that no country has ever yet been willing to pay its price. The world can have peace whenever it really wants it more than anything else. But up until now, men have never wanted peace as much as at the present. The price of peace is free movement of trade, free movement of populations, and adjustable distributions of territory. And this is an expensive demand. It will not be until we see the superior value of peace that we are willing to meet it. At the present moment, we have national trade barriers that have set up artificial and expensive systems in order to cut off others from the normal markets in which they might dispose of their goods. Our own tariff is an example. It was adopted over the protest of 50 nations. It is one of the most difficult policies in the contemporary world, making a dislocation of normal markets, shutting off other, natures, other nations from natural outlets for their surplus products, and so condemning millions of their people to live in starvation levels. We cannot escape responsibility for the resulting tendency to war. Would we rather fight than surrender the right to control our tariffs to suit our own welfare? Would Great Britain call out our army and our navy before she would part with a square mile of her empire? These are questions whose answers reveal whether we are willing to pay the price of peace. My own guess is that there are some things we value more highly than peace, and this leads me to the belief that we are willing to say we want peace more than economic or territorial or colonial advantages, then we shall have peace. This has produced the most enthusiastic belief of our current world, namely that we serve our own best interests in this nation above all other. Supreme good in the mind of the average man is not the building of peace among nations, but the securing of the advantages of his own nation before that of any or all other nations. As long as this is true, every man is the raw material of the army and pompous ecologies that support our own economic nationalism in a tendency towards international strife. It will not be until we are ready to put international good above national advantage that we shall be prepared for peace. The first advance on the road to peace is to recognize its cost. Peace is an easy word to praise, but a costly one to live with. Nonetheless, it is only in keeping the peace that we shall achieve those goals that set men free. There is no other way. There is no cheaper way. 
And that's the end of the quote. I have often stated in my own life and as a result of observation that we grown-ups were not always as smart as we think we are. <laughs> yeah. I, also, I have also often observed, and I, sometimes I say this out loud, that if we would simply shut up and listen to the young people, we would learn so very much about life, how to live it, and how not to take ourselves so seriously. But it is not very often that we run across a young person from such a small town that can put such wise words on paper in such a self-explanatory manner. Yeah. So, of course, he's chosen the winner. Papers across the nation make a huge to-do about this young boy who has such forward ideas. They reprinted his beautiful flowing words that he obviously sat down and felt compelled to write. Everybody wanted interviews. They wanted to talk to him. They wanted to see him. The people in his own town bragged about the fact that they all knew him and now look how famous he got himself. The townspeople were so proud of their own self-made celebrity that they didn't want him to have to go to the big city dressed in the clothes that he would normally wear. Okay. So they got together and they set him off in style. The townsfolk provided Lloyd with a brand new suit, a brand new red tie, new shoes, a new felt hat, and some brand new gloves. They could not have been prouder of him. Peck's Men's Shop is the clothing store that actually provided all of his clothes for his fancy new outfit. And, of course, they got a little bit of publicity out of it, too. Right. So Lloyd gets on an airplane, first one ever, in his new outfit, and he heads off to the big city, first time ever. He checks into a hotel, first time ever. Imagine that would be very intimidating. Never been on a train, never been on a, yeah. on a bus, never, never been, been on, on any, an airplane, yeah. never been in this big city, yeah. never stayed in a hotel. Never had such fine clothes. And, and he's probably doing this on his own. Like, he yes. doesn't have someone with him. Nope. He went all alone. Um, so they take him to a professional baseball game. Again, first time ever. They take him to the Empire State Building. First time ever. They took him to a live show. First time ever. He actually got to meet the star of the show afterwards, which was pretty cool. And on Sunday, April, um, on the next Sunday broadcast in 1936, April of 1936... Lloyd went to Eddie Canton's home where he met Eddie, the man who had sponsored the contest, and they spent the day together, which Lloyd enjoyed. And that evening on Eddie's Sunday evening broadcast, Lloyd was introduced on air. He said a few words. He thanked everyone for their generosity. He felt like a king, and he was pretty much on cloud nine. Right. For a minute. Uh Uh-oh. In the morning, Lloyd's asked to go to the office of Eddie Canton. And he goes there and he meets with these gentlemen and he is asked if he copied the essay that he sent in for the contest. Lloyd said, yeah, yeah, I did. It was well written, said everything I wanted it to say, and it said it in words I didn't have. Lloyd came from such a small town and he had such little experience in life that he actually had no idea what plagiarism even was, what it meant, much less that he had committed it. Lloyd stated that the article was much better written than anything he could have produced and he didn't see the problem. He'd just taken out all the big words that he didn't understand. It's not a big deal. He wasn't told he couldn't. There were no rules. Oh, Jesus. So, in a brief interview with a reporter shortly before he actually left his hometown and went to New York, Lloyd had actually told the reporter that he had taken the article from a magazine called Peace. He said the contest had no rules. It never stated that the work submitted had to be original, so what's going to happen? 
Eddie Canton disqualified Lloyd's essay. Not because it wasn't original. He disqualified it because he failed to use quotation marks around the portions that he had copied the whole thing. But there weren't any rules. That was my question. If there are no rules to the contest, how, do how did Eddie have the right to disqualify him? Yeah, because nowadays that would have been a lawsuit. Absolutely. But we're talking 1936. Right. So Lloyd goes home. Lloyd goes home wearing his badge of shame. Yeah. Gets off the plane. Upon his return to his hometown, he is surprised to find pretty much the entire turned out to welcome him home. They were just as proud of him when he returned as when he left because he was still their hero. Lloyd Franklin Lewis went on to get married. He had two daughters. He had a son. He had two grandchildren, three great-grandchildren, and he lived to the ripe old age of 97. He passed away on January 29th of 2013. Wow. No. You know, when you and I write stories... Here's my question. We don't just... I have one source. I have a question. Okay. You have a question. Go ahead. Did he ever get to go to college? I did not find that. Okay. I did not find that. Here's what I found. When I do stories and the article or articles that I'm reading and using say we can't find a death certificate, we can't find a birth certificate, I Google shit. Yep. Here's the huge twist. The huge freaking twist. Never saw this coming. So I went to genie.com because I have an account there. Okay. And I put his name in. Okay. And they said, do you want to find out if he's related to you? No. Are you kidding me? Nope. His father is my great aunt's husband's sister's husband's aunt's husband's great uncle's wife's sister's husband's fourth great nephew's ex-wife's husband's great grandfather. So if you take me and then you put me with my father, there's 24 relatives between us and Eddie Canton. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I never saw that coming. Ever. Oh, my God. I know. <laughs> never, ever would I have seen that coming. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right. I was a little afraid to put Lloyd's name in there to see if we were related to him. Wow. Yeah. Okay, yep. I didn't see that coming either. <laughs> I told you you wouldn't see that one coming. Damn. I know. I like it when I can do that to you, too. That because one. I put, like, I put the search in, and then later that night, like, about 11 o'clock, I saw this message on my phone, and I'm like, holy shit! <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, this oh. is going to be good tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, that yes. was, wow. All right. So I will tell you that the essay was actually written by Dr. Frank Kingdom, who was president of Newark University. He actually wrote the original, the original essay, essay okay. that Lloyd used and took out all the big words he didn't understand, which I thought was pretty cute. He just took out the words he didn't know. <laughs> Slightly off topic, but not off topic at the same time. Okay. There's a lot of stuff that we... We're exposed to, read, listened, heard, whatever we're taught when we were in school that I remember a damn thing about any of it. Okay. Yeah, because you don't you don't use it in your everyday life. When I was in high school, my both my junior and my senior year, I had the same English teacher. He taught advanced English, college prep English, etc. 
And um, he was a British literature major. So we, we did a lot of British literature. Okay. So at one point, I and I, to this day, I, I could probably go dig up who wrote it. To this day, there is something that he taught us that we were exposed to in his class. I'm sure he doesn't listen. If he does, thank you, Mr. Gibner. It's a poem. Okay. It's called Peace. This is the entire poem. Peace. A butterfly sitting on a cannon. To this day, I have never forgotten that. It's been more than 25 years. Apparently it made a little impact on you. So there you go. Yeah. That's my story for you anyway. Damn. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It was actually a really interesting story. I thought we were going to get to the end and be like, Eddie Cantor didn't exist. You know what I mean? Like something bizarre like that. All right. Wow. Yeah. Good story, Mary. I like that one. I like when I give you a big twist like that. (laughs) Yes, because usually it's me. I know. Usually it's you that twists me all up. That was fantastic. And sometimes you can figure out what my twist is before I get to the end. I knew you weren't going to this time. Nope. Well, thank you to everyone who stopped by and lent us their ear. We hope that you enjoyed Mary's story today. I hope so, because I'm pretty sure we did. (laughs) Wow, that was really fantastic. The story, the coffee, the drinks. Yeah. Everything. You can find us on Facebook at Tell Me Something I Didn't Need to Know. You can find us at TMSIDNTK at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at TMSIDNTK. If you have suggestions, ideas, comments, um, corrections, because as Mary said, we research and write our own stories and we are human, so mistakes do occasionally get made. Yep. And we always use multiple sources for our stories. But that doesn't mean we're not going to make mistakes occasionally. Yep, exactly. If you have enjoyed your short stop with us, please feel free to follow the podcast. Leave us a rating and a review. Yep. You can find us everywhere. Everywhere. We're like weird on rice. We're everywhere. We are everywhere. We're like shit on the bottom of your shoe. Oh, God. just spread that everywhere. No, let's not. (laughs) Okay. Let's not. (laughs) We do really honestly love to hear from our listeners. So. If you have some desire to reach out to us and share something in your own life that you think is amusing or amazing, or you happen to know somebody who would make a fantastic guest on our show, yeah, reach out. Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. If you, yeah, I mean, share us. If you have your own podcast, you want to cross advertise. We're, we're, you know, putting a trailer together. It's like two, two and a half minutes. Yep. You know, if you want to cross-advertise, put a trailer together, send it to us. We'll throw it at the end of our, our episode. Not a problem. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's really about it's really about supporting each other. Yes. Because there's a lot of there's a lot of podcasts out there and they cover every genre that is available. But it's really, you know, it's not about to me about being competitive. It's just about supporting each other. Yeah. It is. And that's what we want to do. We love sharing the weird, the twisted, the unique, but we also love sharing those hometown stories. Oh yeah, so oh absolutely, yeah. A lot of our tidbits come from from come from listeners. Absolutely. All right. Well, Mary, do you have a final thought? I don't. All right. We thank you. We love you. We appreciate you. And until next week, stay mischievous. Bye, guys. Bye.
Where were you when the world stopped turning on that September day? Were you in the yard with your wife and children or working on some stage in L.A.? Did you stand there in shock at the sight of that black smoke rising against that blue sky? Did you shout out in anger and fear for your neighbor? Or did you just sit down and cry? Did you weep for the children who lost their dear loved ones? Pray for the ones who don't know. Did you rejoice for the people who walked from the rubble and sobbed for the ones left below? Did you burst out with pride the red, white, and blue And the heroes who died Just doing what they do Did you look up to heaven For some kind of answer And look at yourself And what really matters I'm just a singer of simple songs I'm not a real political man I watch CNN But I'm not sure I can tell you difference in Iraq and Iran But I know Jesus and I talk to God And I remember this from when I was young Faith, hope and love are some good things He gave us And the greatest is love Where were you when the world stopped turning On that September day Teaching a class full of innocent children Or driving down some cold interstate Did you feel guilty cause you're a survivor? In a crowded room did you feel alone? Did you call up your mother and tell her you loved her? Did you dust off that Bible at home? Did you open your eyes and hope it never happened? Close your eyes and not go to sleep. Did you notice the sunset the first time in ages and speak to some stranger on the street? Did you lay down at night and think of tomorrow? Go out and buy you a gun. Did you turn off that violent old movie you're watching? Turn on I Love Lucy reruns Did you go to a church and hold hands with some strangers Stand in line and give your own blood Did you just stay home and cling tight to your family Thank God you had somebody to love I'm just a singer of simple songs I'm not a real political man I watch CNN, but I'm not sure I can tell you the difference in Iraq and Iran. But I know Jesus and I've talked to God, and I remember this from when I was young. Faith, hope, and love are some good things He gave us, and the greatest is love. I'm just a singer of simple songs, I'm not a real political man I watch CNN, but I'm not sure I can tell you the 
difference in our rock and our red. But I know Jesus and I talk to God and I remember this from when I was young. Faith, hope, and love are some good things He gave us and the greatest is love. The greatest is love And the greatest is love Where were you when the world stopped turning On that September day?